Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is what I think is going to be a very special Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast, episode 68 for October MMXIII. Episode 68 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Way to go! Follow me! Nice bike! Thanks, want a ride? Sure, got a helmet? A helmet? What are you, some kind of wimp? No, I just... Jonathan's just using common sense. Beachhead! Cross country! That was a close call. You all right? Yeah, thanks. These ATVs have as much power as a real motorcycle. You gotta respect them. And wear helmets for protection. Now, now we, we know. know! And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are December's Batgirl number 26 and Birds of Prey number 26, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. 
Finally, Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by TweakedAudio.com, high-performance noise-reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSAVES get 33% off their whole order, plus free worldwide shipping. TweakedAudio.com. Plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Well, welcome. It is October and, you know, the fall, the leaves are finally starting to change. I was concerned that it wouldn't happen because it seemed to have taken a while. Temperatures have started to drop, which I love, actually. And, I mean, hopefully you've been walking around and just getting that feel of of fall and, and Halloween and everything. And like I said, you know, it's not necessarily the holiday, but I just love the <laughs> the the creepy movies that come on that are really ridiculous and the the pumpkins that you start to see all around and just the, the weather in itself. So it's everything I guess besides the actual holiday and, and the the weird demonic spirits that go along with it. But Halloween itself, just sort of the atmosphere around it I enjoy. Now, news-wise, hopefully you heard that Scott Snyder said he is going to be bringing back Stephanie Brown into comics. It happened at the New York Comic-Con at one of the Batman panels. So there's going to be a weekly title called Batman Eternal, and... Finally, Steph Brown is going to pop into the new 52, and she's going to be returning as spoiler, starting in issue 3 of Batman Eternal, in a story that's written by James Tinian IV. And here's Scott, what Scott Snyder said about Stephanie Brown's return. He said, we know that they're characters that you guys have been really vocal about. Your guys' love of Stephanie Brown has been so inspiring to us. We're really proud to announce that she'll be coming back in a new weekly series, Batman Eternal, in a big way. Dan DiDio is in the audience to yell at us for telling you that. No one was trying to shelve her. It was more about finding the right time to introduce her. So I'm sure everyone, well, you're going to be of two minds, I guess. You're going to be excited about it, but I I think as any good fan of comics and of the old 52, you're also going to be concerned. And you're probably wondering how I feel and maybe you're thinking, well, Stella is pretty excited about it. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Stephanie Brown. But my feeling is our version of her and our love for her, which really took place in the old 52, especially in Batgirl, I don't think that Stephanie Brown belongs in the new 52. Because really, even all the guests that I bring on here, you know, we talk about new 52 and Batgirl, and really this idea is that the entire Batman universe is very dark, and there's really no fun spot. I mean, you have to leave continuity in order to get fun comics like Little Gotham or some of the the Superman adventures that you've got uh, going on in DC. But they have nothing to do with the new 52, unfortunately. And so to bring a a really optimistic, bubbly character like Stephanie Brown, positive, this light that I always call her of the Batman, and to put her in the new 52, I feel like that light is going to be turned off, and it's not going to be the Stephanie that we know and love. So there's my first concern, just her entire personality. The second thing is that we bringing her back as spoiler, which I guess really what other way could it be, even though, of course, Batgirl is undergoing this thing where she doesn't want to be Batgirl anymore. But bringing her back as spoiler is, is 
like going back to ground zero and when Stephanie Brown's first spoiler people like did not enjoy that character and not only people within the universe but readers as well because she she was slightly obnoxious she was very green she didn't really know what was going on of course spoiler just like the idea of it was that she was spoiling uh, people's fun mostly you know bad guys but also the fact that she would mess up things it would also be spoiling the heroes as well and just think about Batman he would be frustrated with her and everything else so I'm just concerned that we are going to go back to square one with the character and this love that we had in the old 52 is going to be squelched so that is my concern now Scott Snyder you know I really respect him as a writer and I trust him there are some things that obviously I don't enjoy that he's written and, and some things that I question especially Death of the Family and Tinian's the one who's writing this and of course he's I guess if we could call him protege and you know now he's he's more on his own than he was in the beginning but I think the eternal is really going to be under the wing of of Snyder overall and then people are going to piece in so hopefully we can be trusting but again this is someone new that is handling it and it's somewhat disappointing you know, actually, now that I'm like thinking about this, I do wonder how uh, how um, the great Brian Q. Miller feels about this announcement that she's coming back. And I don't know, like if it were me, it would almost feel like a, a slap to the face because I think he would have been the best person for that. But again, this is not the Stephanie Brown that we knew before. I think if this were a weekly series with Steph Brown and then the old 52, it really would be a slap to the face to not ask him. But this is probably this is probably one of the signs that it is going to be a completely different character. You're getting a completely different writer that may not know her as well as Brian Q. Miller does. But it is still disappointing to not see his name underneath that. And a weekly series, my goodness. Weekly series are so fatiguing to get. Uh, you know, Spider-Man, I'd been you know, on the Spider-Man Crossface podcast for several years, I guess four to five. And that was a weekly, it was actually three times a month, so it's not as bad. But I don't know if you guys remember me telling you that I really got back uh, full force into comics and I did uh, 52, which was uh, a weekly comic, and then Countdown, which I'm one of two people maybe that has gotten all those Countdown issues. And that was just so tiring. And it's really expensive as well. I mean, you're paying at least $3, well, $2.99, so let's just round up $3. So you're paying $12 a month for one particular comic so it it'll be interesting but I, I guess I'm just gonna stand here and wait and and be hopeful but I'm more scared than hopeful this is as I said this is going to be a pretty special episode uh, just because I'm going to be doing something different obviously you know that in this month, well, obviously I'm a month behind. So in September we had that crazy villains month, which, by the way, I do not recommend ventriloquist because, as expected, it was terrible, and I'm not wasting my time and going to go over it here. But there really was no Batgirl or well, there was a Poison Ivy centric one, which was actually one of my favorites. So I do recommend going out and getting that Poison Ivy one. There are a couple other good ones. I'd recommend the Killer Croc one and the Man Bat. Those are all ones that I would put my my weight behind but I do not recommend buying the ventroquist or Joker's daughter was also equally terrible if not worse who knows we had a debate about that on the Batman universe but anyways there wasn't really a Batgirl story or a Birds of Prey story so you know the new comics is going to be bare so I couldn't really do anything so it could have been you know skip the October month altogether or do something special 
and I'll get to what that special thing is. But first up, we do have this really wacky old review here and <laughs> just buckle up for this ride. Hopefully maybe you recognize the the music at the beginning of this episode and and you know maybe what it has to do with but here we go detective comics number 505 hunt for a hunchback killer the cover date was august 1981 and it also featured batman in werewolf moon writer carrie burkett artist jose delbo and joe giella letterer john costanza and colorist cal gafford Batgirl watches as a strange, humpbacked character lurks in an alley and waits for a young woman. He attacks the woman, but luckily, Batgirl stops him, explaining that he has terrorized Gotham for weeks with mad, random murderers. And he is clearly insane because there's no rhyme or reason for these murders. Iago, the hunchback, breaks into a music store, grabs a guitar, and swings it at Batgirl. Sadly, Batgirl cannot avoid its arc and is hit and is slow to recover. The commish finds Batgirl to give her a pat on the back, but Batgirl only blames herself for letting Iago go. Errors like that can cost many lives. She then thinks to Jeff and his injuries sustained because of the bomb planted on her bike by Dr. Voodoo. She finally goes to visit him as Batgirl, and she had earlier as Babs, and offers to pay his medical bills. He turns it down, saying that it wasn't her fault. He knew the risk, and it was worth it, given the fact that she puts her life on the line every day. He fights the way he knows how, and he doesn't want her to take that away from him. She agrees, but she says there must be a better way for Batgirl to come and go from the garage, and then she unmasks. Yeah, uh, so this leaves Jeff in a bit of a tizzy. At Humanities Research Development, Bob Barton is out of town at this point, and Babs takes the opportunity to ask Richard why Barton has such a problem with her. Apparently, he had zero luck getting the government to subsidize cultural programs, and Babs represents a politician and, of course, the government, thus making her a target. Well, it's not like they were ever going to be friends anyways after she slapped him, though it probably would be funny if they started dating. That night, Babs decides to set herself up as bait for the hunchback uh, and she's cloaked in a feminine jacket with a hood uh, luckily it's raining out or that would just look silly hoping the hunchback will find her she sees a shadow and does some judo to catch iago off guard Batgirl is ready to subdue him when she accidentally drops a gas pellet without putting on her nose filters first they both are knocked out to be continued in this next issue which was detective comics 506 farewell my lovely the cover date was September 1981, also featuring Batman and Who Dies for the Mannequin. Writer Carrie Burkett, artist Jose Delbo and Joe Giella, letterer Milt Snappin, and colorist Tom Ziuko. So, apparently the hunchback wakes up first and wanders off, saying that it is not his fault. The muse drives him to murder. Each new victim is an offering to this muse, allowing him to compose music, and already he hears a song. He sits down and he begins to compose with a mandolin. Batgirl awakens, chastises herself, and then decides to head home and regroup. She just gets out of her costume when the phone rings. It's Jim calling to remind her about the chamber music concert. Looks like Babs won't be getting any rest. While she loves Mozart, she is nearly falling asleep, then takes a closer look at a cellist's fingers, getting an idea. After the concert, she returns as Batgirl and questions the cellist, asking to see his hands. She observes the calluses and then asks what would cause a double crease on a person's fingers. The cellist said it would most likely be a mandolin. Huh. 
Have we seen someone playing with a mandolin before? Babs then finds three music stores in the area that the Hunchback operates in, and only one that has a regular customer for mandolin strings. Batgirl finds the owner just as he is being beckoned by the muse to kill again. The musician dons a costume and ugly mask, taking on the guise of Iago. Batgirl bursts in but slips on a piece of music as she is fighting him. He has the upper hand and is strangling her when she says that he must play his composition before she dies. Iago decides the muse would approve of that, and so he ties Batgirl up and begins to play. Batgirl likes the haunting, beautiful music, and Iago is finally able to finish the piece. As he gets up with a large knife, Batgirl, still tied to the chair, is unable to get free, of course, and he stabs himself, which you didn't expect. He may be saved from the muse that drove him to madness, but with his death comes the loss of his music. How sad, how tragic. Okay, well, first of all... Um, we're back to eight uh, eight pages here for these these stories. Um, it was nice we had that scarecrow story where everything was great and wrapped up. And even though it was missing some details, I think that overall was a pretty full filled story. But this is just frustrating because we're just thrown into the midst of a story, and many plot details are really already set up, and we're just moving along with it, and and we find out what we need to know from. Uh, the narrator a little bit, and then Babs and her internal dialogue. So who is this guy? Why has no one else seen or caught him? I mean, he's a hunchback. We've all seen Hunchback in Notre Dame, right? It's not like hunchbacks are inconspicuous. And I'm just wondering where all the other heroes are at this point. How could Babs not duck or jump out of the way of a swinging guitar? But of course, this actually is a pretty big plot detail or clue. The commish, if you noticed, he's actually making slips and he's calling Batgirl or almost calling Batgirl Barbara. And this is interesting or ironic because way back when uh, she was calling her father dad rather than commish. She was accidentally having some slips as well before she knew that he knew. So this is kind of a neat turnaround here. Babs blames herself for losing track of the hunchback, even though she did save the girl. Um, it, it's as if she believes she's the only person capable of actually stopping him. But, you know, I do wonder, does she ever stop and think about all the other heroes that have not tried to actually get the hunchback? Remember, we're in Gotham, so where are all the other heroes running around? And, of course, Batman has probably ha has this guy on his radar as well. So what exactly is he doing? I do love Jeff's speech. Uh, I think it comes at a great time, especially with Babs, again, feeling down on herself. And normally we see um, her father come through and really have words with her, and, and those words have an impact. But it seems like this time it doesn't work out. But let's talk about the big reveal. So Babs, well, Batgirl pulls back her cowl and shows that it is, in fact, Barbara Gordon. Why? Why did she do this? Is this really going to help him in the end? And and I understand that she wants to really pull him into the fold. And maybe this way, now that he knows everything, he'll be able to be more careful and they can set some things up so bad stuff doesn't happen. But I almost feel like she's dragging him further down or farther down the rabbit hole and that he could get even more hurt. And, well, he's just shocked in general. And, and he had no idea, which I guess is interesting because you wonder, you have to wonder what these people are doing that they don't see these clues to identities but 
what are your thoughts? I mean, would you have done this? Would you have revealed yourself? And it, it's just interesting. I'm I started rewatching Smallville from from the beginning, and you know, it's more so in the beginning than in the end. He Clark really contemplates about telling people, especially Pete and and Lana, just wondering, you know, why can't I tell people? And I mean, the answer is really all always the same um, that it puts other people in danger and it's such a burden for other people to carry and I'm just wondering why Babs would do this because really if you think about it the only people that know that she is Batgirl definitely are her father Batman and Robin and remember that weird mind wipe she doesn't even know who Batman and Robin are anymore so it's just a little frustrating why 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 what what point does this serve to to really pull Jeff into the fold so let's see what happens. Um, hopefully, in other in future stories, let's see what happens because of this. So at her work, Babs talks with Richard about you know that jerk Barton and his behavior toward her. And I do wonder why this all of a sudden happens really conveniently while he's out of town. Why not right when it happened? All these negative words, or when she became friends with Richard finally. And then, again, we see a Babs that's really clumsy and, and making rookie mistakes. I mean, dropping the gas pellet by accident, not having her nose filters ready. I mean, that seems a little strange. Uh, and awkward, yes, Ellie, awkward that the gas knocks them both out and he falls on top of her. <laughs> but, of course, uh, yeah, I don't know. But what Batgirl is this? I, I think this is especially strange. Right after she had this sixth sense that something was coming at her and, and she got the drop on Iago in the alleyway, just not even seeing his shadow but sensing another presence, and then all of a sudden she drops a gas pellet. So uh, I don't necessarily believe that that makes sense, but a, just a, a weird Batgirl and questioning her experience level. So then the hunchback is the one who gets up first. He just wanders off, but he doesn't even comment that it's Batgirl that he, he killed or it must have been anyways and shouldn't he also check to see that she is actually dead and that's of course a detail later on that he realizes he couldn't finish his composition and then she pops in and he says oh that must have been the reason why and talk about a risque entrance babs comes out to answer the phone with a towel that's barely covering her yikes how far we have come i mean from the 60s with her boots and the uh, weapons purse and of course having <laughs> uh, some mistakes with her the costume cut-ups if you remember and then we had a shower scene in the 70s and now in the 80s here we've got this man and of course I mean don't think me a prude but just you know if you think about comics nowadays and what they look like it's just a shock to go back now and just see I mean, when you've been doing it since the, the Silver Age, everything seems like a shock to you when there's, you know, some, some skin showing. So it, it, it was just a little, a little too much. It reminded me of Robotech and poor Dana and all those shower scenes that I counted, like 12 and 7 ish or 7 episodes. What a little detail. I feel like it's a little out there, the fact that Batgirl can see double indentations or calluses or whatever on the hunchback 
Beck's fig, uh, fingers, thus thinking him a musician. I get the whole callus thing, but really indentations, why would they? I mean, indentations hold, but it's not like he was playing his mandolin and then decided to go kill somebody and they were still lingering there. I feel like the indentations would be gone by then. But let's also mention the fact that she just goes up to a musician and asks to see his hands. I mean, how bizarre is that? How terrible are the treads of Babs boots if she can just slip on a piece of paper? And I think maybe now is the time to get rid of those heeled boots and actually get some work boots or steel toe boots or something. It's unbelievable that the hunchback would be so easily convinced to play his composition once he's about to strangle Backroll to death. Like, oh yeah, you know, you're right. It's kind of like all those bad guys that you can easily get them to stop what they're doing and distract them by saying, hey, what is your plan? And then they, they spell it out and it's normally the amount of time that the victim needs to escape. I think beside, uh, besides Batman Odyssey, this may actually be uh, one of the strangest stories that I have ever read. Why in the world was this guy mad, as in mad crazy? Why was he putting on a costume? I mean, he says, it's, it's not I, but Iago, the hunchback that kills. Is there some symbolism, you know, with the hunchback? He's got to be an, uh, an ugly guy so he can conduct these ugly crimes. Who was this real guy? Who was the muse? You know, was it really just in his head or could it have been a real entity? Is Dr. Voodoo back and he's telling this guy to to kill people in order to lure back girl? Who knows? And then he just kills himself. You know, why didn't he just do that in the beginning once he started hearing voices and decide that he wants to be a good person and he would rather die than kill other people? I mean, besides a lot of random things that don't really come together make sense, this is also a very, just a very bizarre story. And I'm going to have to give this a, a 5 out of 10. So that's kind of a low one, I would say, in the 80s, probably the lowest I've come upon. Wow. Well, if you have any thoughts on this one, please be sure to, uh, to let me know and email me, especially just about that reveal. I mean, do you agree with the reveal, or do you think that... Maybe she shouldn't have done it. I'd love to hear what you think. Well, when I come back, I, like I said, like I teased, I'm going to be doing something completely different. Uh, but now, there's going to be Zias's Radio Hour, and it's featuring Dance Macabre by Camille St. Sainz. And I have to say that even if you are not a fan of classical music, I do hope that you give this one a shot. It is just, it's such a wonderful piece, and I, I think it fits our our sort of spooky theme well and I will see you soon
well, welcome back. Uh, hopefully you like that music. Um, I first heard it when I was watching... My parents enjoy Grimm, the TV show, which is actually about a descendant of the, the Brothers Grimm, and you find out that it was not just a story, but the things were real. And um, he... he goes after these people known as Vesson. Only if they're bad, though. He's a completely different Grimm because the Grimms of old would just sort of look for Vesson and, and kill them right away. But he only... He's a cop, so it's it's pretty interesting. And so they really wanted me to give it a shot. And it's actually kind of cool to watch shows that your family is also watching just so you can have somebody to discuss those particular shows so they watched Smallville and so we were able to talk about that and and I started watching Longmire on A&E and now I decided to give Grimm a shot and and season premiere is coming up on Friday actually probably when this uh <laughs> when this episode is released but anyway uh there was a particular episode called Dance Macabre and it was it, it featured this music, but there was a lot more that went on in there. Anyways, so definitely, I don't know. It's just, it is haunting and beautiful, and I, I love to, to listen to it. It's just, a, I think it's a great work. So as I said before, I'm doing something completely different. And I was thinking, you know, what kind of special or something could I do that's just, you know, maybe it goes along with the Halloween theme or something, and I sort of like danced around different ideas and then I decided you know why not do something that's sort of close and personal and and about me so if you don't want to know any more about me then I guess it's time that you uh, press the play button and, and pause the recording and then move on to another podcast I, I'm giving you sort of a top 10 list and they're not in the only order that they are in is almost chronological order but the top 10 things that basically freaked me out and it's either going to be movies or tv shows top 10 movies or tv shows that freaked me out gave me nightmares or just I, I couldn't watch it as a child now I will say I guess like all children and it's funny because now when I see uh for instance I went to go see Brave with some family friends of mine and so the concern was that the youngest, I believe she's six now, she may have been five at that time, and it was her birthday weekend actually, so it was sort of a gift for her. Would it be scary? And there were actually some moments, you know, there's like that scary bear there uh, at the very beginning. You know, would she be frightened by it? And it's interesting because you can't really like focus on it because you're, you think, well, maybe it's an intense scene, but I don't think she'd be frightened by it. But, you know, I think back now and there were lots of things that <laughs> certainly freaked me out as a kid. And I have really sensitive hearing. So insensitive, in fact, that for the most part, I normally go to the movie theater and I have to wear earplugs because it is just so loud. Um, I go to concerts and I have my earplugs in hand because <laughs> concerts are really loud. I mean, I love uh, music, obviously, but and, and I'm talking more about like rock concerts and stuff. If I went to a band concert or classical music, I don't think I would have to wear it. Just like scary, sudden noises um, are frightening to me. I remember going as a small child to see, I think it was just like a teaser of some sort. It was it was a field trip, but they were going to do like the first scene or so of Phantom of the Opera. And just the loud music 
and almost the explosion after you know they do lot 666 and it's the chandelier and the chandelier goes up and it's that big me like that freaked me out and so when i was a small child i used to and i'm talking small as in like i mean maybe six or seven but when that happened i would always and really for any loud music or things i was afraid of i would get out of my seat and like be in front of my seat down on the floor kind of like in a fetal position so that <laughs> obviously i couldn't see the <laughs> the the screen at all i mean i would just leap out and then be huddled between the the front of my seat and the back of the the row in front of me but this was a good uh, protective mechanism. If you ever go to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, you can always ride a train. I, I, I assume that they still have it. It'd be interesting to go on it now. Kind of a historical ride through Gettysburg. And uh, at one point it stops and I think Confederate soldiers start coming on. And that, that freaked me out when I was younger as well. And uh, I don't remember if I got down uh, under my seat or not, but I do remember being very frightened. So all of these things are perhaps, and I'll tell you sort of the situation if there's something very specific that I remember about them, but in general, these are all movies, TV shows that really scared me. Going to be a lot of sound clips. You can kind of use your imagination to see what, what is going on in the sound clips. It may be familiar to you or not. And uh, just sort of talking about what it is. So again, I'll go just chronological order and again I'm a I'm a child of the I mean I grew up really in the 90s so a lot of this stuff may may sound familiar to you way back when cartoons were scary let me just tell you that but the first one was not a cartoon uh have you ever heard of the blob Dave Doc Hallen's been killed Doc Hallen what happened it's over at his place you gotta come now oh, wait a minute Steve tell us what happened well I'm trying to tell you now this thing had killed the doc well, what was it stop with it kid but it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger and bigger. It. Every one of you watching this screen, look out, because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. Teenagers see it first, like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Hey, come on. I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. Nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the blob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people.
and especially let's talk about the 1958 one which was moderately I mean it was still scary but it it had uh, Steve McQueen in it which is kind of funny but it, it's basically this well it's a blob but it's a growing amoeba-like alien that comes from outer space and it actually terrorizes this small town and it like I mean it eats things and eats people and <laughs> so it came out in 1958 pretty sure it was in black and white though rest assured black and white films are still pretty scary and I remember having this and I was living in Pennsylvania at the time so I probably was five or six and I remember having rented this a couple times and trying to watch it one time maybe it was on TV actually the first time because I, I vividly remember renting it the second time but being on TV and not being able to watch it through like maybe the first time the blob comes on I just couldn't handle it I ran to my room now I decided I think I, I recall having this conversation with like my parents especially my mother that I'm gonna sit down let's do it let's rent the blob and I'm going to watch it through. And I remember like having a TV dinner right in front of me on a little TV dinner stand. And I'm going to eat my dinner. And I believe it was turkey, to be honest. I vividly remember these, these details. It was turkey. Pop in the blob. And I'm watching the blob. And then the blob comes out. This is the second time, so we rented it. The blob comes out. Couldn't handle it. I just couldn't. I, I couldn't eat anymore. And I just had to turn the blob off. It was it was freakish. I mean, if you think about this giant gelatin-looking thing, basically it rolls over you and you die. I mean, that is freakish. So the blob is definitely that that almost could be like my top one. But anyways, that's the first one that that I remember being freaked out. Now in the 90s, uh, there were a couple series uh, that I, I think really horror things for kids were making. A, a splash and one of the I used to read a set called Goosebumps I don't know if you remember this it's actually written by R.L. Stein and I mean there were some wacky things I remember there was on about a living doll and all these things and just like I guess are there really fads now well I guess you could say Percy Jackson and Harry Potter are sort of the the kid which I guess you know, don't be insulted. I said kid, but those are also teen. But just sort of the fads. You know, I we had animorphs and goosebumps and things like that. And and goosebumps, everyone wanted to read those. And then they started making the the TV show that was based off of goosebumps.
And I have to say that it was scary, but it also had some some comedy elements. And I was probably less affected by this, but I, I do, you know, remember probably desirous, being desirous of, of watching things during the day. And luckily they did come on in the day. That's one of those things, actually, that I'm still affected by. I do not enjoy playing games that have people running after you, like in Uncharted, in the, uh, when you're, those weird zombie things are coming after you. I can't play those sorts of games in the dark. Uh, whenever I played God of War and I was down in Hades, I couldn't play those sorts of games. It just freaks me out. I need to have, like, lights on. I, I do not enjoy it. Uh, so that was number two, Goosebumps. And around the same time, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Now, this show actually was pretty freaky because they were almost like real-life situations, and especially the way they set it up. It's always this group of kids. They come to a campfire that is forever burning almost, but they, they put it out after they leave. But And then someone has this magic sand. It's not really sand, but they say that I've got a tale to tell, and then they throw the sand on the, on the fire, and then so goes the, the, the tale. And it's normally about a kid, you know, they heard of, or, you know, I knew of this kid, and this happened. I remember Monkey Claw was always scary with the, the wishes and such. Uh, there were some really good ones, I remember. Uh, I loved the pinball wizard one, where he was trapped. That was my favorite, where he was trapped in the, the pinball machine and had to, like, save the princess. But these were actually pretty frightening uh they didn't really have that comedic element uh to it that goosebumps did and they really went sort of for the fear factor and they were targeted towards young adults and so as a kid you were pretty frightened by what was going on and again it seemed like this stuff was realistic because it was happening to kids your age so are you afraid of the dark is definitely (laughs) definitely on this list now number four is the first cartoon that i'm going to talk about Oh, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Have you heard of this? Our world was much larger then. The forest went on forever. We tree spirits nurtured the harmony of all living things, but our closest friends were humans. Then, as sometimes happens, 
the balance of nature shifted. And Hexus, the very spirit of destruction, rose up from the bowels of the earth and rained down his poison. The forest was nearly destroyed. Many lives were lost, and the humans fled in fear, never to return. Most think they didn't survive. It was only by calling up the magical powers of nature that I was able to trap Exus inside an enchanted tree and save Fartgari. Now, this came out in 92, and I'm trying to remember if I ever saw it in theaters, which I feel like I did, and I also remember seeing it perhaps again on TV or renting it. But this was a, a freakish movie i mean it it's it scared me you know it's about this almost like this fairy world and you've got Krista, who's a fairy a fairy girl she well she lives in ferngully and that's sort of this this magical place but then she decides she wants to go out a little bit and she f- goes to a rainforest um near mount warning in australia and even though it's believed that humans um are dead she thinks that there are still some humans and stuff uh, a lot of stuff goes on i mean there's a fruit bat that was experimented on named batty and and she shrinks this man down to help her out but really hexus is this oh uh, he's the villain and he's this scary smoke monster and then in the rainforest whenever the the machines are coming through and and chopping down trees in the rainforest this huge scary machine and it's also possessed by hexus i remember that machine was so terrifying it was it was very terrifying i encourage you to go and see this movie uh but you know just be prepared to cover your eyes and prepare your hearts but when we think back on these villains we're like why were they so terrifying but if you look at them like there are some really crazy scary villains that pop up in disney and this wasn't a disney film but in in disney i mean especially has really scary stuff that goes on i mean hunchback of notre dame was like a very dark tale so fern gully oh last rainforest i it would actually be interesting to watch this again with a new and older set of eyes but I'd probably still be slightly freaked out by Hexus. And that's why, of course, it is number four on my list. Uh, Number five, Little Mermaid, especially Ursula. You know, Ursula is not an attractive person. 
and and she's always I think there's always this tentativeness that you may have or this this nervousness you may have around her but when she like grows and I feel like you can say she grows like she gets big and like all these evil things around her start going on especially when she takes Ariel's voice and at the end just like crazy I mean she is a scary villain and I try to think of other I mean Maleficent is is scary in Sleeping Beauty and Jafar gets scary in Aladdin and I, but I feel like Ursula is one of the the scariest um, bad guys or antagonists in the Disney movies, and I mean, just see the spells that she conducts and the scary eyes that she has. It's, yeah. Uh, so back to, I guess those are the the last of the cartoons. Number six, X Files. Do you remember X Files? when you're a kid you're told it's time to go to bed you've got a bedtime but there of course when you're a child you you know you may have nightmares I enjoyed sleeping in my parents bed just I don't know comfort reasons I guess and of course if I was ever forced to sleep in my own bed inevitably I would wake up and you know I probably go over there or if it, something happened I don't know if I wanted a glass of water then I would come downstairs and and they'd be watching their own shows and uh, X-Files is one of those things that they used to watch and of course you know it comes on at night and if I were to ever wake up and and come to see them and it was on screen that was a scary television show and I believe that it probably still would be a scary television show even if I watched it now at my age but as a kid, when you don't understand what is going on, I mean, all those alien abductions and the stuff that happened to people in that show freaked me out. And then, of course, just getting up to go see them, then I wouldn't be able to sleep because I would be freaking out or I would go to sleep and then I would have nightmares. So X-Files, I think now and even then, would, would be scary. The other thing now and then, frightening unsolved mysteries.
don't even know if the show is on anymore. I think it came on Lifetime, and I used to watch it with my mom, so I guess I was perhaps 12, 12-ish or so. And of course it always came on at night. But Unsolved Mysteries, I mean, the way they do it is that, and I don't even know, like, is it real or not, but they would have some fantastical stories. Like, they would talk about Princess Diana's, there'd be a, she had some sort of brother that was locked in the castle because he was like this wooly beast um so they want to do that i mean they would talk about the chupacabra there'd be some attacks and like they would be interviewing real life people there are lots of alien abductions and scary things that they would talk about like ghosts and stuff so the fact that it's it seems to be steeped in uh realistic facts and they're actually interviewing people and they blot out some people's faces if they don't want to be on tv and master voice you know for their protection or anonymity's sake the fact that it, it seems like everything is actually real is the scariest thing of all. So then, of course, you watch this at night, and then you're freaking out. Like, I would wake up in the middle of the night and, and you know, check my room and the surroundings, and, oh, my gosh, is what is that weird white thing? Oh, it's just my closet door. So, I mean... <laughs> These are things that even today I'd probably be a little bit nervous about. I mean, there are some times that I wake up and, like, try to figure out where I am. I'm sure that happens to some people as well. Hopefully I'm not just crazy. But, you know, you try to get, feel, figure out where you are, and then you look around and you're like, wait, what is that weird object? And then you orient yourself and you realize what it is. But Unsolved Mysteries is just probably not the best thing. You know, warm milk maybe if you want to have it for before you go to bed. But Unsolved Mysteries, maybe not have a dose of that before you go to bed because you'll be thinking about that and there will be stirrings in your brain and it makes you nervous. So that, yes, anything that is steeped in realism I think is the, 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 makes it extra scary. Uh, next up is, I guess, the first, or I guess the second live-action movie that uh, sort of freaked me out. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is a wonderful movie. But whenever I got to the end where they actually open up the ark, couldn't do it. Couldn't watch it, man. I would close my eyes, wait for it all to be over. So basically, I was like uh, Indiana and um, the woman that he was tied to. And I would just wait for it all to be done and then continue on i mean it is frightening when you look at i mean their faces are melting off and they're screaming and i mean if there's ever a reason to be frightened well and and i guess awe-inspired by god and like what he can do that right there that scene proves it to you plus it also lets me know that if i were to ever find the ark of the covenant that i would not open it due to the fact that that happened but it is a scary film at the end anyways
I recommend all the Indiana Jones at well in the well Temples of Doom. I don't understand. I have a good friend George Berryman, and he says that he loves that and it's the best one. I think it's the worst one to be honest. And all this ripping out of hearts and stuff. Bah. My favorite is actually Last Crusade. I think that is a great one. But Indiana Jones: Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, even now watching the melting of the face scene, the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, still pretty nerve wracking. Who? Uh, the next movie that, oh, back to <laughs> Diving Under the Seats, Independence Day. And I remember seeing this a couple times. And this was in New York that I saw it. And there was a palace theater. And they would have 
oh man I remember discounted price theaters and now I wonder how much it is or what it looks like but we would go and see that of course they'd have older films I feel like I saw it in the Megaplex once I think we did a double movie that day we saw Independence Day but we also saw something else and then it came to the Palace Theater and we ended up seeing that again and both times I could not handle watching the dissection scene. All right, life support monitors recorded. So if we screw up, it's all on tape. Okay, come on, come on, come on. Let's get this biomechanical suit off. Put the spreader right here, right along the ridge. Microprobe thingamajig goes right here. Pick there, good. All right, now spread it very, very gently. Let me get in. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's proceed. Now comes the uh, the really icky part. Oh. oh boy. This is one smelly, disgusting. Doesn't look alive, does it? <laughs> the arm is moving. too freakish I cannot do it I I will also tell you that when I was younger um, not so much now though there are some moments and it's more like real real life situation moments that make me queasy but way back when I just couldn't handle like blood and, and any sort of thing so the idea of a dissection on screen was was pretty vulgar to me if the megaplex I'm pretty sure that I dove under my seat the palace theater I think I just got up and like left during this scene but just opening it up and then the alien attacks and all these freakish things are going on I mean I just like closed my eyes and waited for it to all be over um or of course I just left the the palace theater and then well I left the actual theater and then I came back in once it was all over but I think even now, that's that's a scary scene. I probably would be able to watch it now, now that I know better. But, whew, way back when, that was that was pretty scary. Uh, so that was nine, and finally number ten. And I remember watching this willingly with my mother. It.
Georgie. Aren't you going to say hello? Oh, come on, bucko. Don't you want a balloon? I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, Georgie. Very wise indeed. I, Georgie, am Pennywise, the dancing clown. You are Georgie. So now we know each other. Kitty <laughs> Rex. I guess so. I gotta go. Go? Without this? My ghost! Exactly. Go on, kiddo. Take it. Oh, you want it, don't you, Georgie? Oh, of course you do. And there's cotton candy and rides and all sorts of surprises down here. And balloons, too. All colors. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float, Georgie. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float down! That's right, it. So originally it was a book by Stephen King about Pennywise the Clown. Really, it's it's actually this monster and it looks like... I, I remember when it was flying over. It, it looks like an arachnid. I, I would have to see it again to see what it is like. Slightly disturbing is that it only uh, goes after children, so I don't know how the novel portrays it, but uh, that's it almost seems like Friday the 13th in that way, where originally Freddy was uh, a pedophile, and then the, the vil well, not the villagers, but the townspeople burned him, and then he starts coming back. But he only goes after kids, and he basically kills them like every, or every three decades. And he always comes in the guise you know obviously it's this monster thing but he comes in the guise of Pennywise and that's not like that's the most reassuring of things that is going on uh, there are other things you know I could talk about certainly I mean the characters you know what's really funny is that the the main character is John Boy from <laughs> from Waltons the Waltons uh, because it starts in very early you talk about oh my gosh uh, which is the, the sound clip that you'll hear but George and his paper boat going into the the storm drain but anyway so there's a killing and then you actually flash forward several years obviously the 30 years and then you've got your older group of friends and then they have to refight this clown and it's interesting I love the sort of stand by me aspect of it and just this group of friends that you see in the past and then uh, as they grow up in the future and and they take on it again it is I remember it being two VHS's worth, but I don't remember when I watched this. I feel like it could have been 12, 13 or, or something, who knows, but mom's like, hey, let's, we should watch this. It probably was older because my parents, well, especially my mother was pretty conservative in the things that I, I was allowed to watch, but even if I was, like, there were very scary things. I mean, George what happens to George in the very beginning was very scary and just like Pennywise is a frightening entity 
if he is to be honest like it, it seemed more campy once he turned into this monster but pennywise was the thing i think that that frightened me but i mean the people that were in the movie the movie is really good i mean tim curry he did a wonderful job as pennywise because it was creepy you had annette o'toole trying to think of who else was in here john ritter i mean all these people oh I'm seeing this here. I just looked up on uh, Wikipedia, and apparently Guillermo del Toro would like to direct a new adaptation of it. And then that was in 2010. 2012, it was going to be adapted into a two-part film directed by Kerry Fukunaga. I wonder if that's made any progress or not. I mean, oh, Guillermo del Toro, could you imagine that? But I don't know if anyone's going to be able to recapture that, the creepiness of of Pennywise the Clown is as good as or as well as Tim Curry oh man uh so I guess this was just me rambling on for 20 minutes on my childhood and things that freaked me out but maybe you had similar uh lists of things that that were equally terrifying for you when you were a child Uh, maybe you agree with some of these things on here and you felt the same sheer horror by watching some of them and i would actually i would love for you guys to send in you know maybe what was your top your top thing that frightened you as a kid or if you have a list a top 10 list you know send it my way backworldoracle at gmail.com i definitely read them off on the next episode but oh if you can survive childhood with really scary things going on uh i think that you will be a stronger person and even now i you know there are scary movies i generally avoid horror movies you know i talked um, or I guess you haven't heard that episode yet, but I talked with Tom Panarese about it and just, I don't like gory movies, um, which really is the horror genre these days. I mean, you think about Saw, Evil Dead, just like looking at Parents Guide and like seeing all the gross stuff that goes on in that movie, just like really creepy things or bloody things and and just going for gore factor I'm not a fan of. I love the suspense films. That's why I think like really awesome actual horror films like Lon Chaney Jr. would be in or Bela Lugosi you know the Wolfman the Mummy really Night of the Living Mummy I think in the black and white and, and Dracula all these awesome films that people I think pass over and now you know you've got things like Shutter Island with Leonardo DiCaprio which was pretty pretty suspenseful jaws i think is a suspenseful film because you don't i mean the fact that you have this creepy music the music helps all the atmosphere definitely but i mean not knowing what it is not seeing anything that's pretty horrifying so there are some great movies out there but the gore factor just it completely turns me off so i don't really see any of those movies but there are certainly some some freakish movies or movies that make you think that'll that'll keep me up at night or or again cause me to just wake up and check my surroundings i think shutter island certainly was one of those i'm trying to think of when the last time it was that uh one of those things happened to me pan's labyrinth was pretty horrifying as well that was ooh, especially with the the guy with the eyes oh yes the orphanage i went that to some people and they said that it was a terrifying film but there there are great movies out there i think that really have untapped potential that people just pass over and they go for the the horror the gross flicks i watch here's a contradiction for you i don't really like zombie films i tried to watch it not adventureland zombie land but just the 
ugh, the flesh ripping and like the eating of stuff is again this grossness factor that I don't really like but I really do like The Walking Dead on TV and yes there is some flesh ripping and I obviously I do not like it but it's really more of a character study and there's also just a lot of suspense as well if, if there are characters in these really bad situations that like just the suspense is building especially with the governor and everything else and and that's really I love the character development and just seeing how they're surviving and all of this stuff that's going on and, and really moral and ethical debates that also happens within the cast so I mean there are things like that but I you know, if I could recommend a movie to watch, you know, to, to get you going on or for Halloween if you want a creepy movie, I really do recommend just go. Do we even have, I was going to say just go to Blockbuster, but do we even have those anymore? But if you can, just rent like old school Dracula, old school werewolf, old school Night of the, the Living Mo like just there are so or blob frankly you may be scared and frightened by the blob the 1958 version i they i know they did a remake in the 80s but i recommend the 58 version it was still freakish even in its uh, probably uh, campiness now if we were to think about it but just get away from the gore and see what you think about the suspense but I think that, you know, even though I rambled on for, for 20 minutes, hopefully you enjoyed maybe even just the, the audio clips. But a look into the life of Stella and what it was like to grow up with these frightening things and, and what I used to do. Who knows? I probably would still jump under something if, if it happened. 3D movies. I don't think I've seen a 3D horror film. I do have to say I do not like walking through those places where people pop out at you and scream at you. Those actually, like, I will cling to whomever will be <laughs> with me at the time, which probably be, would be a very awkward first date now that I think of it. Imagine going on a first date with that, with me, and going through that. Like, I would be clutching your arm. I would, I, I don't even know. It would be a frightening event. I just don't like people, like, popping out at me. That would, no that's not my thing so anyway i think i'm done now just gonna give my closing uh comments as always you can well you can send questions comments give me your top 10 list i'd love to see them what'd you think about backgirls reveal to jeff those sorts of things to backgirl to oracle at gmail.com like me on facebook me as in the podcast or of course follow the podcast on twitter at backgirl to oracle and like Batman Universe on Facebook as well and follow us along. Of course, we're, we're looking for people to write articles again. Um, and if you think that, yeah, I've got an opinion and, and I would really like to follow a particular book along and, and share my opinion and, and really get my feet wet and writing reviews, please email me. Maybe send me a sample of your writing or you can just email Dustin. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Well, I hope you have, you know, I hope you have a spooky Halloween. Be safe, of course, but I, I really encourage you to check out an old film that, you know, it may not be frightening, but I think it's got awesome elements to there and it really, it really demands respect, I think, from, from viewers. And just think about that. So maybe for one day, if I could wish anything, one day take a step back from a gory film and choose an old-time film or, well, I should say vintage rather than old-time, or check out a suspenseful film and 
and just see the difference. But again, be safe if you're going out for Halloween, if you're going to be partying, or if you've got young ones that are trick-or-treating, I hope you have a safe time. And uh, until next time, which will be November, so no more frightening tales of, of my past. <laughs> until next time, fly on, Bad Lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?